double double toil and trouble fire burn and cauldron bubble fillet a fenny snake in the cauldron boil and bake eye of newt and toe of frog wool of bat and tongue of dog adler's fork and blind worm sting lizard's leg and owlet's wing for a charm of powerful trouble like a hell broth boil and bubble double double toil and trouble fire burn and cauldron bubble cool it with a baboon's blood then the charm is firm and good from macbeth by william shakespeare there's a darker road ahead a path obscured by shadows this is no episode of the twilight zone you will find no light in the distance it has long been said that a witch who cannot curse cannot heal and vice versa and yet the truth of our time is most of us fail to practice balance and through this failure to embrace our nature fully have become fractured shattered fragments of a more powerful whole but to reach the apex of our power our angels and demons must shake hands across the great gulf of our being pulling us back together welcome to fool's guide to the occult i'm your host hector the ghost and happy october to everyone a couple months ago, I was reading a text called Working Conjure by Hoodoo Sen Moise, in which I came across the phrase, working with both hands, which I particularly appreciate. The meaning of this is linked to the concept of maintaining balance. To work with both hands implies maintaining the scales of balance by doing both healing or blessing, and also crossing and cursing when necessary. This doesn't mean that we should go out and do damage willy-nilly, but when the occasion truly calls for it we should not shy away from doing the work it is our duty to strive towards harmony just as our cells are constantly juggling salt and water in the never-ending struggle to achieve homeostasis we too must recognize and participate in our role as agents of change in the universe friends are not made nor wounds healed with bullets and sour words just as wars are not won nor evil vanquished with flowers and kindness with such being the case, I intend this to be a two-part series. Today we will discuss the destructive half of things, and with the next installment, we shall address those things which most of us tend to be more comfortable with. Both are of equal importance, and there is a bit of each in the other. As an epidemiologist I know likes to say, dose makes the poison. So we will be talking about the opposite of healing today, the aspects of cursing, hexing, binding, crossing, and the destruction of enemies. I try to avoid making enemies, as all of my close friends will tell you I think the world needs more love. That said, I am by no means a pacifist and fully endorse the execution of wrath when it is justified and called for. For example, literal neo-Nazis, racist cops, politicians, and so forth. What a wonderful time to be alive. But hey, now and again, you've got that jerk neighbor or a person at work who's sabotaging your career or sullying your name in the office. Some of these things work just as well for those cases, too. I would make the point, though, that binding and separation magic is preferable in those latter cases, as those people are not actively trying to physically harm you. Down and dirty curses and hexes are totally appropriate for those neo-Nazis firing off live rounds at protesters, lynching people, or those pigs that just seem to keep getting away with murder. Remember, we need to help maintain balance. Balance is just that. We cannot be tipping the scales too heavily in any direction. So please, don't try to do death magic on someone for cracking a joke at your expense in the break room at work. 
This warrants more of a direct conversation than anything, but if you must resort to magic for this, binding is a better choice than something more heavy. At this point, some of you have noticed, and perhaps some of you have not, that I have been avoiding using the term black magic in reference to the type of working we will be discussing today. This is absolutely intentional. What is black about negative workings? What is negative about night, about the absence of light, about the color black? Nothing. As explained in the documentary In Search of Voodoo, Roots to Heaven, the old dictionary definition of the word black is evil, cruel, the absence of light, the opposite of white. This idea has been projected onto our workings as well as into our perceptions of skin color. This is wrong. And since negative magic belongs to no race, no color, and no culture, I prefer to remove the color black from any form of magic altogether. In fact, as the very few number of occultists I have worked with in the past will tell you, I pretty much exclusively use white candles when doing any kind of magic whatsoever, whether it's healing, love, money, negative workings, separation, drawing, war magic, what have you. The reason for this is twofold. Firstly, I find white objects to be easier to project visualizations over. It's a blank slate, a whiteboard, a primed canvas ready to be worked upon. The second is a point derived from optics. White light is all of the colors of the uh, visible human spectrum. A white object shows up as white because it reflects all the waves of light. Black gets hotter faster than any other color because it absorbs all of the light in the spectrum. And as those of you who aren't up on the science here may have already figured out, an object that is any particular color appears that way because it absorbs all of the light spectrum except for the color that it appears to be, which it reflects back. Because the white candle is neutral, representing all aspects of the light and color, and from my perspective can be a clean canvas upon which I can work, I prefer to use them, uh, even for left-handed workings. Of course, I always recommend you use the materials that you are most comfortable with, which may mean you don't use candles at all. Those things aside, let's dive in. First of all, there are some important steps we have to follow in any good spell work. Uh, we have to determine what we want to happen so we can send a clear message to the universe. Perhaps there's a coworker that's causing us trouble at work. Maybe they're spreading rumors about us, or they found out a secret and we want them to keep their mouths shut about it. Or maybe there's a roaming gang of white supremacists coming into town and wandering around at night looking for people to rough up. Both of these we would deal with in different ways, but either way, we need to create a clear statement of intent. Don't wishmaster yourself by leaving too much leeway for the universe, spirits, deities to interpret your request however they like. Once you have your basic statement of intent down, we're most likely going to want to do a SWOT analysis. That is, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. If you want more detailed breakdown of this process, you should head back to the Making Your Own Magic episode that's uh, Season 1, Episode 5, or check out the breakdown of this in um, Phil Hines' Condensed Chaos. After our SWOT analysis, it is probably a good idea to do some divination, or if you are doing ancestral work, maybe ask your ancestors and ask them to give you some sort of guidance. After this step, you may want to revise and refine your statement of intent. For dealing with your shitty coworker, a statement of intent might be something like, 
It is my will that Karen Smith be prevented from any speech, action, or behavior of any kind that might harm me, my career, or my life in any way. For dealing with that roving gang of scum, you might craft something like this. It is my will that, name of group, come to an irreconcilable impasse that tears them apart. Not only do they collapse as a group, but the individual members are broken in drive, in will, wallet, and flesh. May their names and deeds be made public. May they be released from their careers, expelled from their homes, and driven from the community like the rats that they are. You can then, of course, take these statements of intent and convert them into sigils if you like. The sigil can be used as a meditative focal point prior to starting uh, the ritual to come, carved onto a candle you're burning during the ritual, or uh, drawn right onto an effigy you create with a sympathetic link to this Karen or this group of brutish thugs. Now at this point, we need to craft our ritual, and a key component of working magic on others is creating a sympathetic link. All of the classics apply here. Hair, fingernails, a scrap of cloth, their signature, blood if you can get it, or just a picture of them. Not the best, but it'll do. There are certainly many different methods of incorporating these links into a working. Burning a picture while hexing someone can be effective. Of course, there are other classics like dolls or poppets or effigies made from clay or from uh, root plants. But uh, before we go into detail about this part, let's review a little bit about the specifics of sympathetic magic. Sympathetic magic, simply put, means like things have like effects or connections. Though the idea of sympathetic magic has been around longer than recorded human history, this idea seems to have been formally explained in The Golden Bough by James Frazier. Essentially, it is taking two separate concepts and linking them together in the practitioner's mind using some kind of commonality as a sort of spiritual or supernatural link. These commonalities can be shape, size, color, name, whatever binds the two things together in a useful way. I discussed this concept in the very first episode of Fool's Guide to the Occult with Kevin and Tyler. Hope you're all doing well out there, and I hope to see you all soon. When we first discussed this, we brought up a pretty illuminating quote from Raymond Buckland's Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft, which I'd like to bring back around. He states, If a life-size clay model of a bison was made, then attacked and killed, then hunt of a real bison should also end in a kill. Religio-magic ritual was born when one of the cavemen threw on a skin and antlered mask and played the part of the hunting god, directing the attack. There are still in existence cave paintings of such rituals together with the spear-stabbed clay models of bison and bear. From the idea of sympathetic magic, we get tools like effigies, voodoo dolls, wax dolls, mandrake roots, and so forth, as well as the whole mass of magical correspondences. Really, this is a fundamental to any magic that uses something to represent some other thing, or that uses uh, one thing to affect another thing. Uh, revisiting the anthropology of religion, magic, and witchcraft by Re Rebecca and Philip Stein, there are two components to sympathetic magic, the law of similarity and the law of contagion. So we have it that the law of similarity establishes that things that are similar can be used to affect one another, or as Fraser put it in the Golden Bough, like produces like, or that an effect resembles its cause, 
the magician infers that he can produce any effect he desires merely by imitating it. For example, a picture of a person can be tortured in order to torture the individual. The law of contagion, as explained in the Stein's book, indicates that things that were once in contact continue to be in contact after a connection is severed, which, now that I'm looking at them side by side, is exactly what Fraser wrote in The Golden Bough, though he continues with, the magician infers that whatever he does to a material object will affect equally the person with whom the object was once in contact, whether it formed from part of his body or not. This gives us the use of objects of personal significance, or the use of blood, hair, fingernails, etc., to create sympathetic links, known as a taglock, to an individual when connected with an effigy, poppet, doll, etc. As Kevin mentioned back in episode 1, the wise magician is exceptionally good at personal grooming, and tends not to leave little bits of themselves just anywhere for folks to find. When it comes to establishing a tag lock, a link, via an effigy of some sort, you want to make an effigy unique every time. Do not reuse dolls. I will repeat that. You want to make these effigies unique every time. Let me say it another way. Never recycle an effigy using it with a different person. I also prefer to make these things from scratch instead of ordering ready-made ones, but in today's fast-paced world, I can completely understand why one might go that route. One reason for creating them yourself is that during the act of creating, you are imbuing it with energy and intention for the task which it will be set. And this is magic in itself, and will only make your later rituals more powerful. If you are interested in making your own effigies, you are really only limited by your own imagination. While the historical methods involve making them from sticks, carved logs, cloth, clay, or carving them from roots like potatoes or mandrakes, which sort of already look like little people, uh, you can also make them from popsicle sticks, play-doh, paper mache, I've even heard of people using aluminum foil in a pinch. Really, anything you can shape into a humanoid figure will work, anything your little heart desires. The nice thing about cloth poppets or dollies is you can fill them quite easily with the objects uh, that you need to create your tag lock, but also uh, other spell components like crystals or sand or flowers or herbs or thorny plants and so forth. Uh, you might also consider carving um, a pillar candle into an effigy that you will burn. Uh, something really fun about candles is, well, for one, most of us practicing occultists have them laying around already, but two, you can carve out an area around the middle of the pillar candle, place in the objects for the sympathetic link, and seal it back up by melting wax over it. Of course, this process is even easier if you're already making your own candles. One last thing though, if you're making a cloth dolly and filling it with something soft, cotton batting, cotton balls, whatever, you might also consider incorporating twigs or sticks into the arms and legs to represent bones. Of course, these bones can then be snapped, if you like. Regardless of what type of effigy or alternative object you choose to use, you need to get those sympathetic links inside there and fix the connection. You could also just make what is referred to among hoodoo practitioners as a hand by placing the objects and relevant spell components on a square of cloth 
bringing the corners up together and then tying it off, being sure to wrap the string away from you. For negative magic or sending things away, you wrap away from you. And for drawing or positive magic or healing yourself, you're going to wrap towards you. Now that you have your sympathetic link established, you need to tell the universe or spirits or gods, whatever or whomever you are working with, uh, what it is you desire. This is where the ritual aspect of spell work comes in. Whatever your style of working you do, uh, be it traditional Wicca or ceremonial magic or some form of folk magic and so on, the key parts here are hyping up your emotion, entering some form of trance state and uh, prayer, petition, or spell, which are all forms of declaring your will to the powers that be. Hyping up your emotion can take many forms, but usually it will incorporate actions, words, meditative processes, and all the other symbolic gestures that help create a gestalt or unified experience. When we're talking about this sort of magic, people tend to have associations such as the colors red and black, blood, darkness, acrid or foul smells and tastes, sharp objects like nails, pins, knives, fire, or just pain in general. I've already mentioned that I have a uh, preference for white candles above all others, but another often overlooked association when working with destruction magic, especially what Carol refers to as entropy magic, is white cloth. The historical burial shrouds of European cultures and the cultures greatly influenced by them, such as the United States, were white cloth. Furthermore, in many cultures, a sacrifice or offering of some kind is made regardless of the type of magic you're doing, and I'd like to take a moment to point out a common misconception about animal sacrifice within traditional African voodoo practice. As I understand it, as a person not of that culture and having never been to Africa but has been very interested in this topic and looking into it for many years, Based on the information I have gathered, when an animal is sacrificed, the blood is the offering to the god, but the body of the animal is partaken of by the village and the practitioners. There's no waste. Now, I'm not in any way encouraging anyone to go out and offer animal sacrifice, but I'm also not telling you to not do that. Whatever you do, I encourage you to do it ethically. And please don't sacrifice pets or anything like that. Usually in these cultures where this is being done, it's traditionally farm animals, which would be slaughtered anyway. There's also self-blood sacrifice. Again, I'm not going to encourage or discourage this, but I will say be smart, be safe, think, and do your research before engaging in any practice. You shouldn't be diving into things you don't fully understand, especially... Uh, in a time where we need to be very conscious about uh, disease transmission and things like that. But while we're talking about this, pain is another form of sacrifice that can be offered without the drawing of blood even. Uh, Self-flagellation, physical exhaustion through hard work and other similar things can lead to trance-like Gnostic states. And if you associate them properly with a deity or spirit, you can use this as a form of sacrifice or offering to them. For example, think of those creepy monk guys in the Dan Brown book. Uh, they were like whipping themselves and then wearing those uh, barbed collars around their thighs as penance for their sins and sacrifice to their god. To add a bit of potency to your ritual, you might consider invoking an entity associated with death, destruction, havoc, and so forth. 
Uh, for more information on invoking, you can hop back to Season 2, Episode 11, but some of those entities you might consider calling on here are Karis, or if you want something more peaceful, Thanatos, Mott, Anubis, Osiris, Ereshkigel, Nurgle, The Morrigan, Freya, Hell, Apollo, Karen, uh, Atropos, Hades, or Pluto, Hecate, Kronos, Mara, Yama, Kali, Izanami no Mikoto, El Tio, Santa Moyate, any of the Baron Loa of uh, Haitian Vodou, such as Baron Samadei, uh, Saturn, and really the list goes on and on. There's like literally hundreds. Uh, before we move to discuss more destructive forms of magic, let's take a look at a basic binding ritual. If you'd like to see the full written transcript of this ritual, you can find it in the digital grimoire on patreon.com forward slash FG2TO when I release version 0.50 in the next two weeks. Uh, the Patreon is pay what you can, all access, no tears, no fears, but hey, how about that binding ritual? This is a ritual I call a bound and gagged. It's a spell to prevent someone from speaking or otherwise taking action that may harm you or your career. Here are the minimal ingredients you will require. One effigy per individual to be worked upon with appropriate sympathetic links or tag locks established. Two cords per individual to be worked on. One cloth big enough to wrap the effigy or effigies uh, when you are done a string to bind that cloth together, a spade or shovel, because you're going to bury them, and then offerings for the spirits and the earth. So be sure to choose appropriate offerings. Um, again, you can find some of that information in the digital grimoire in the version I already released, 0.25, um, or you can just look it up in any other place. Um, so I prefer to make smaller effigies uh, made of wood for this spell. In fact, I prefer to use little popsicle stick people. The items uh, to create the sympathetic link can just easily be incorporated with hot glue right on the back. And you can even glue their picture to the head part if you like. And then you can easily write or carve sigils or other symbols you may wish to incorporate right on the popsicle sticks. Um, I tend not to give my effigies clothing, but I do know people that do that, so if that thing resonates with you, uh, have at it. Once you're all set up, you're going to go through your standard ritual process to do magic. If you've not established this yet, you shouldn't be messing around with this kind of magic at all. Uh, when you are ready to perform this spell, hold the effigy, or the first effigy if you're casting this on multiple people, in front of you. Visualize it as the person it represents as clearly as possible. Uh, the way they look, the way they speak, the way they smell, especially if they have a perfume or a cologne they wear regularly, and so forth. Now, set them down on your altar, other workspace, and pick up the first cord. And you want to tie a knot in the center. If the cord is thin, you may want to fatten the, the knot up a little bit by tying uh, extra knots over top of it. Uh, essentially, you want it big enough to cover the mouth in the picture or the face that you have put on the head of the effigy. Now, at this point, pick the effigy up again. State, name of person. With this cord, I gag you against any speech that may harm me or my career. Now, wrap the cord around the face, starting with a knot over the mouth, and tie tightly in the back of the head. As you do this, visualize the individual being unable to speak their words trapped in their throat when they try to say negative things about you. 
Now, pick up the second chord and say, name of person. With this chord, I bind you against any action that may be harmful to me or my career. Wrap this around the effigy's arms, restricting them to the body. As you do this, visualize them being unable to move, completely bound and restricted. When this is done, utter the words, so mote it be, and visualize the energy you have put into the effigy being transferred to the person themselves. If you're doing this with more people, repeat the operation. If not, wrap um, up all your other magical needs, your worship, deconstruction of the temple, banishing, um, anything you need to do before grabbing your spade and heading out to the forest, or my preference for this, a creek or riverbed. Before you head out though, wrap your effigies in the cloth or large piece of fabric I mentioned, gathering it by the corners and tying it off with a string seven times wrapping away from you. Uh, and then make knots uh, in it to seal it tight three times. When you get to the location of burial, you'll want to make an offering to the local spirits before digging the hole in the ground. Uh, make sure that you dig it deep enough that it will not be disturbed or eroded away, especially if you're working in moving water. Once you've done so, you'll want to make your offering to the earth itself, usually by placing a few coins or some liquor into the hole before the bag that contains your effigies. Once you've placed the offerings and bag inside, fill it back up, pack it down, thank the spirits for their work, and head on your way. One side note, do not do this ritual in a cemetery. Burying an effigy in grave dirt amounts to working death magic. And speaking of death magic, let us now turn our attention to the more destructive things. In the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, there is a chapter titled Earth, the Book of Belial. Within it, there is a section called the Three Types of Satanic Ritual, which concludes with the following. Concerning destruction, be certain you do not care if the intended victim lives or dies before you throw your curse, and having caused them destruction, revel rather than feeling remorse. Heed well these rules, or in each case you will see a reversal of your desires, which will harm rather than help you. In Libra Chaos, Peter J. Carroll presents us with two forms of magic that are particularly useful here, the first being combat magic, and the second being entropy magic. When it comes to combat magic, he recommends that it involves a public condemnation or cursing of the enemy. But when it comes to the ritual itself, the incorporation of all ancient and modern symbols of war, including guns and explosives, are important, as well as the use of drumming, fire, and the invocation of any war deities such as Thor, Ares, Ishtar, etc. Of course, Carol would recommend that we engage in war magic first, allowing ourselves to give off the aura of complete morale and resolve, scaring the enemy to such a degree that the use of combat magic is unnecessary. Like Musashi's statement, the ultimate goal of the martial arts is not having to use them, Carol feels that the same is true of combat magic. Nevertheless, he provides us with an even more devious option if all else fails. The use of what Carol calls entropy magic, which many may know as death magic, is the execution of will such as to initiate self-destruction operations within one's target, or as Carol puts it, plant a mechanism in the subconscious by which the target could come to grief and then project it with the aid of sigils and uh, perhaps an evoked servitor. Entropy magic works by sending information to the target which encourages auto-destructive behavior. 
Carol points out that servitors made for this purpose should be uh, of sort of one-off creation. Like effigies, they're, they're not to be recycled, even more so in the case of servitors as uh, they have this potential to be deadly to the maker uh, if they linger around. The difference between entropy magic and combat magic can be likened to the difference between a battle and an assassination. Combat magic is public, and the opponent is made aware of who's out to get them. Entropy magic is done in silence. Similarly, combat magic will utilize those god forms of war, whereas entropy workings will utilize deities associated with death. LeVay reminds us the hyping up of emotions such as anger and the symbolic destruction of a tag locker, fundamental components to the proper execution of such rituals. But something he points out, which we haven't discussed yet, is that this kind of magic will be most potent when your target is at their most passive or receptive state, perhaps while they're heavily intoxicated at the staff holiday party, in a mind-numbingly boring meeting, or even while they're asleep. Other than thrusting pins, needles, and nails, or even burning an effigy, LeVay suggests that one might consider drawing or painting graphic imagery that depicts the harm that will befell your target. This could also be done with forms of prose, which may be recited during the ritual. When it comes to other components of these types of magic, one might consider crafting a war wand, or using a special sword or dagger, objects that already have some association with destruction. As Carroll puts it in Psychonaut in the essay on magical weapons, the sword is the reservoir of the power which disintegrates etheric influence through which the material plane is affected. He finishes this section by reminding us that the magician should be capable of performing any ritual on the astral, that is, by the power of imagination alone, by strongly visualizing any of these weapons to the point where he actually hallucinates their presence such empty-handed techniques are the mark of the adept. And with that, let's take a look at a simple curse, shall we? The minimal ingredients required for this working are one effigy per individual to be worked upon with appropriate sympathetic links established, pins, needles, nails, a lighter, whatever you want to torture the uh, effigy with, a spade or shovel, again, you're going to bury them, offerings for the spirits and the earth, be sure to choose appropriate offerings, um, offerings for the watchers of the cemetery gate, that's going to be four coins, and also something to cover your head with. Uh, so get your effigy set up, tag lock and all, go through your general process of performing magic. When you get to the point in which you're going to execute this spell, invoke any relevant god forms, demons, uh, servitors you desire to work with. When you're done, hold the effigy in your hand and strongly visualize, to the point of hallucination if possible, the effigy as the actual person you wish to affect. Now using the implements you have acquired, torment and torture the effigy knowing that, as you do, your target will suffer similar symptoms. When you've fully exhausted your feelings and achieved a satisfactory release, utter sobo to be, and carry out the rest of your operations. Your next step is to go to a cemetery, preferably one in which you have already established a relationship with the spirits that reside there. When you arrive, cover your head before approaching the gate. Once at the gate, you want to offer one coin to each of the cardinal directions, starting with the east, then the west, then the north, and the south. Just show them to the direction, and then place them alongside the entrance to the gate. 
These are offerings to the watchers of the gate. Once inside, if possible, find a crossroads within the cemetery. If the path is dirt or gravel, you can uh, dig directly in the center of the crossroads. If not, you can dig alongside it. Once you've dug a small hole, make your offerings to the earth and the spirits of the cemetery before placing your effigy in the hole and filling it back up. Offerings that are appropriate here are another four coins, uh, some liquor, typically whiskey or rum, but if you know the spirits of the cemetery well, you might know something else they prefer. Once you're done, leave. Do not look back at your work. Just leave. Thy will be done. Now, I opened this episode by discussing the importance of maintaining balance and our role in this. As such, and though I will follow this episode up with one on creation, healing, and protection, I feel it unbalanced to leave the episode without offering something at least slightly the opposite. This little something was supposed to come out a while ago as part of an astral temple that would be available for all to use, but as things tend to go, it was delayed, and at this point, I don't really have time to put much energy into it. Nevertheless, I feel this aspect of it is pretty essential at this point in space-time, so I've separated it from the astral temple, given it its own space, and I welcome you to join and participate in its function. Again, the full written transcript of this will be in the Digital Grimoire on Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash FG2TO, um, but I will also release it as a guided meditation, um, as a, a standalone audio clip of this show. Begin by sitting quietly and comfortably. Clear your mind. Imagine a relaxing breeze and pleasant smells passing over you. You're taking a stroll on a nice day. The sky is mostly clear, except for a few fluffy white clouds. And as you stroll along, you notice one of the clouds looks a bit odd. It's a, a little off in the distance, so you, you keep walking in its direction. Something peculiar happens as you head in this direction. With your gaze fixed on the object in the sky, you find yourself not only closing horizontal distance, but vertically as well. You're walking on air as if there's some mysterious, invisible staircase. You can now see that the cloud is just slightly obscuring an island in the sky. Its rocky exterior is marked with periodic waterfalls of reddish-pink water, seemingly equidistant from one another, flowing off the surface of the island and dispersing in the atmosphere of the world. Atop the island, you can see a massive, gray, mirrored geodesic dome, and as you continue to walk, you eventually find yourself at its edge. On its surface, you see a reflection of yourself, which seems to beckon you to walk into the dome. Only those with good intentions, who seek justice for our world, may enter. All others will be repelled completely. As you reach out, you seem to pass through the grayish mirrored structure of the dome until you are on the inside. This structure reflects negativity back to those who send it, regardless of the form it takes, be it magical, emotional, verbal, physical, and so forth. From the apex of the dome extends a colossal rod of solid rose quartz. This rod extends six feet above the dome and all the way down into the island upon which the dome sits. Beneath the rod, at its base, extends eight channels of crystal clear rosy red water that flow out from the dome and down the walls of the island. 
While the mirror dome itself reflects negativity, the rod draws in positive energy and spreads it throughout the space, such that it brings an aura of peace, healing, love, and light to all those who enter the area. Remain here for a while and meditate on all of the ill will, violence, bigotry, and aggression in our world. See it being reflected back at those who send it. Visualize those individuals having to face the cruelty they have spread and perpetrated on others. Know that in order to heal and grow, we have to suffer and be uncomfortable first. See this seed of change growing within these individuals. Know that they must nurture these new ideas, giving them room, uh, room for them to spread and bring light and healing and new life into the world and into their worldview, or else it will tear them apart like the tree's roots ripping through the concrete of a sidewalk as it grows. Know that either of these two courses are the only possible outcome for them, as our world will not tolerate their hatred. When you are done, take a moment to scoop up some of the rosy water flowing out of the road squirt's rod. Dump some over your head. Wash yourself with it. Rub some into your forehead, the back of your neck. Rub it down your arms, your legs, and finally your feet. Enjoy its sweet smell and feel its cleansing nature heal your emotional and spiritual wounds. Feel revitalized, ready to take on the world, and know that this power is within you always. Remain here for as long as you like, and feel free to repeat these operations if you choose. You may return here as often as you desire. To leave, simply open your eyes. And with that, we come to our homework for this week. Take a piece of paper and make a T-chart. On the left side, put the names of anyone you consider an enemy or antagonistic towards you, a negative influence, or otherwise causing problems in your life. This could be also uh, groups of people or names of hate groups or business or criminal syndicate that is causing you trouble. On the right side, list the names of people you love, care for, friends, other people who you know deeply care about you. When you're done, either in some of the space towards the bottom or on the opposite side of the page, analyze the impact of these relationships on your life. In what ways are they caring and supportive, or toxic and destructive? Once you've done this, plan some ways to deal with the negative energy that's coming your way by virtue of uh, the names on the left side of your chart. Uh, perhaps you can bind opponents, curse a whole group of people to turn against each other, etc. Depending on the degree and directness of this negative energy, you may also wish to consider some elements of magical protection you can employ. And of course, we'll talk about uh, magical protection as well as healing and creative magic in the next, um, not next installment of the show, but the continuation of this little two-part series. But for now, that brings us to the end of the episode. So stay well, friends. Cheers.